A warm welcome to First Move, coming to you once again from London. Great to be back with you. And just ahead on today's show, Russian bombardment, Moscow unleashing its largest air attack in a year against Ukraine, while insisting the United States was behind an alleged attempt to assassinate President Putin at the Kremlin. The White House out with a strong denial. All this as Ukrainian President Zelensky speaks at The Hague, demanding Putin and other Russian officials be tried and sentenced for thousands of war crimes. Also, Lagarde on guard. The European Central Bank raising rates for a seventh straight meeting, a quarter-point hike this time. No Lagarde let up, even as Fed Chair Powell hints at a pause. And financials falling hard. Fresh regional bank tremors with shares of PacWest currently down almost 40% pre-market. The bank reportedly looking into, quote, strategic options to steady its business, but it insists deposits remain solid. We'll explain what's going on. And further financial fissures. Shares of First Horizon Bank set to fall almost 40% as well after pulling the plug on a $13 billion merger with TD Bank. Fed Chair Jay Powell saying in his press conference Wednesday that conditions at U.S. banks have broadly improved. But former Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan warning this week that we're only in the early innings of the banking crisis. And still lots of concern about contagion, too, and the effects of ongoing credit tightening. All this certain to weigh on sentiment, even as the Federal Reserve left the door open for a rate hike pause following its 10th straight interest rate increase on Wednesday. The Fed's target rate now above 5% for the first time in 16 years. Jay Powell saying the Fed will remain data dependent as it plots its future rate course, but just don't call it a pause. Uh, a, a, a decision on a pause was not made today. Uh, you will have noticed that uh, in the in the uh, statement from March, we had a sentence that said the committee anticipates that some additional policy firming may be appropriate. That sentence is, is not in, in the statement anymore. We took that out. And call it perhaps the Harry Potter style Voldemort pause, the pause that can't be named. As investors take all this in, U.S. futures under pressure after a late wobble on Wednesday post Powell. Europe still in the red, too, after today's European Central Bank rate hike as well. So much to discuss. But we will begin in Ukraine and Russia launching the worst attack on Kyiv in a year. And it's now accusing the United States of being behind the alleged Ukrainian drone attack on the Kremlin. The White House firmly rejecting Russia's claim that the U.S. was behind the alleged drone attack. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby was on CNN this morning a short time ago. I would just tell you, Mr. Peskov's lying. I mean, that's obviously it's a ludicrous claim. The United States had nothing to do with this. We don't even know exactly what happened here, uh, Caitlin, but I can assure you the United States had had no role in it whatsoever. And and again, just to be clear, and I think you covered this at the beginning, that we neither encourage nor do we enable Ukraine to strike outside Ukraine's borders. And Matthew Chance joins us now. Matthew, certainly a firm denial there from John Kirby, but it, it plays to a similar theme that we've long been hearing, which is, Russia's desire to portray the United States as perhaps the key architect operating behind the scenes, irrespective of what uh, the actions are that, that Kiev or that Ukraine themselves take. But there are certain voices that are suggesting that someone else, perhaps closer to home, may have been responsible for these drone attacks too. Yeah, I mean, you're right. That first thing you're absolutely right about um, in the sense that we've heard this narrative all along from the Kremlin, that this isn't a sort of war they're fighting against 
uh, the country of Ukraine. Uh, this is a war they're fighting against the much broader sort of Western alliance, uh, led, of course, by the United States. And that helps to justify, from the Russian point of view, their, their, their conflict. And it also helps to account for the fact that they've not made the kind of rapid progress that perhaps they, they thought they were going to make or they said they were going to make uh, when, the, when the, the, the invasion was launched in, in February of last year. Um, in, in terms of other possibilities, yes, well, I mean, the Ukrainians and the United States, that's, that's the possibility the Kremlin are, are, are pushing. Of course, both the United States, as we've heard, and the Ukrainians have categorically denied that. Uh, the other idea is that this was some sort of false flag operation in order to provide justification for a very severe strike, which may be coming in the next couple of days um, against um, against Ukraine. I mean, that, that's something that may, that may well be the case as well. And, and we're going to watch how that, how that plays out. But as you referred to there, I also spoke to a former Russian MP who's now very close uh, to various militant groups that, that are operating inside of Ukraine, you know, striking military recruitment centers, derailing trains and things like that. Um, and he said that this is the work of well, what he called Russian partisans. Um, and th- there are definitely groups of individuals in Russia, Russian nationals, perhaps with some support from from Ukraine uh, as well, from the special services in Ukraine, although that's been denied by the Ukrainians and those Russian groups, um, who are increasingly active inside the country, uh, carrying out very small but symbolically important attacks against the Russian state. And, you know, their view is that, and the view of this former Russian MP, is is that this drone attack on the Kremlin, two drones, in fact, uh, falls into that category of strikes. Just watching the uh, the images once again, Matthew. You know, it's quite fascinating. You mentioned some of the um, suggestion, perhaps, that this was a false flag operation. This is the Kremlin. There's always been this belief that it was utterly impenetrable. This is embarrassing. It makes them look vulnerable. I I sort of don't buy the suggestion that this was um, some kind of way of uh, justifying a more virulent attack by by the Russians. Agree or disagree? Yeah, well, it's a difficult one. It's It's all speculation. It it is all speculation, but let's speculate. That's fine. Look, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, what strikes me as most incredible about the images is that they are such a potent symbol of Russia's um, vulnerability. You know, and, to, and to do that on purpose to yourself to justify for political reasons um, a, a, an uptick in attacks against um, Ukraine just seems to, I mean, logically to be unnecessary, given that, you know, Russia has already destroyed entire cities in Ukraine. Uh, why would it need to provide political justification and to who um, to, do, to do more of that kind of thing? The, the, the way the theory has been explained to me is that, you know, well, it's not, it's not necessarily the Russian audience that the, the Kremlin are playing to. It's countries of the global south. It's, it's China, it's India, it's South Africa, it's other countries in sub-Sahara Africa who are at the moment sort of sympathetic towards the Russian point of view. And it's to them, in order to maintain that support, that they would have to justify um, stepping up military action um, if they were going to do that. And so the, the false flag, if it, if, it, if it is that, would be aimed at uh, sort of smoothing the way, creating political justification amongst countries of the global south who at the moment are sympathetic to Russia's point of view. Yeah, brilliant context. Matthew Chance, great to chat to you, as always. Thank you. Meanwhile, President Zelensky making a surprise visit to the International Criminal Court in The Hague. Of course, we all want to see different Vladimir here. (laughs) In The Hague. 
the one who deserves to be sentenced for these criminal actions right here in the capital of the international law. And Nick Robertson joins us now on Nick. The, the backdrop, of course, is what I was just discussing with Matthew Chance and the worst drone and missile attacks on Kiev specifically that we've seen, what, in, in more than a year? This is what city officials are saying, although successfully for the Ukrainians, all those missiles that were fired at Kyiv were shot down. Um, it doesn't appear as if the intensity was as big as when Russia really began that offensive back in the late fall last year when they were targeting the energy infrastructure. But nevertheless, uh, a noticeable uptick over recent weeks and months. Uh, and when you look at what was written on the tail fins of some of the drones that were shot down uh, around Odessa in the south of the country, 15 drones fired at it, 12 shot down. And on the tail fins, the message was written um, from Moscow, from the Kremlin. So there's clear messaging, not just in the intensity, but in the missiles themselves, on the missiles themselves, that someone there who's sending these off uh, to impact sites in Ukraine uh, thinks that this is, a, you know, uh, this is their response from uh, this alleged drone incident over the Kremlin. But I think it's Kherson that took the hardest hitting overnight uh, in the past 24 hours, but as of early this morning, 539 artillery shells on that city, 23 people killed, 46 wounded, two of those at least children. And this barrage, this intensity and barrage of artillery strikes there um, is the biggest since the war began. Certainly that's the, that's the understanding of people who are in the city at the moment. And from a Ukrainian perspective, they would, they would expect that the Russians were targeting it because the Russians think that this is a potential launch point, however difficult it may be, for a Ukrainian counteroffensive. So all of these high-intensity uh, issues and resolves, perhaps, that, are, that we're seeing from Moscow um, have multiple reasons. The result is exactly the same. It is innocent civilians in Ukraine who are getting killed. Yeah, and that's the point President Zelensky was making. And to your point, great that the air defense forces protected Kyiv so well, but other parts of the country clearly more vulnerable still. Nick Payton, oh, not Nick Payton, Nick Robertson, my apologies. Thank you so much for that. OK, let's move on. The U.S. Federal Reserve raised interest rates once again days after another regional bank collapse and signs of another regional bank failure are brewing. Claire Sebastian joins us now. Claire, much to discuss. We also had the European Central Bank, of course, raising interest rates as well. Let's talk about the Federal Reserve first, because the challenge for them was always going to be, and Jay Powell specifically, if he mentioned the word pause, investors, perhaps even consumers, might hear the word cuts as far as rates are concerned. And he didn't want to do that. So did he get the balance right? Well, Gina, he was very specific, I would say very upfront, even going as far as commenting on his own uh, communication strategy to, to a degree when he pointed out that they had removed the line in the statement that said they were going to anticipate that additional policy firming may be appropriate. He called that meaningful. He did keep his options open by saying that they would be prepared to do more if warranted. But in his own words, he said that he believes that they are closer to the end of this than the beginning. So it was pretty clear that he's leaning towards a pause without actually saying it. Obviously, 
the big problem that he has, and to a perhaps lesser extent, but still the European Central Bank has it too, is that there's a factor in this monetary tightening that they are not in control of, and that is banks tightening lending. And he said as well, very specifically, that that is very uncertain. It's hard to know to what extent that translates into monetary tightening. That, again, perhaps strengthening the argument for a wait and see to see how it does impact the economy. But I think this does put us in this new phase when it comes to the the fight against inflation, uh, which, of course, is still ongoing with inflation in the U.S. at uh, 5% in the euro area at 7%. uh, And that is when to stop and wait and see uh, how the monetary tightening so far has worked, how the uh, banking issue, which in a sense has been created by this tightening cycle, cycle plays into that. And I think that's what we saw play out in that Fed press conference. Absolutely. And I think there's certainly in some quarters, some head scratching going on with what we're seeing for some of these smaller regional banks, particularly when you have big bank CEOs like Jamie Dimon saying the worst is over. And yet we still seem to have this domino effect in some of the regional banks. PacWest, just the latest one saying, look, they're they're looking at all their options here. And and you could look at their deposits and say, hang on a second. Um, They're saying that the deposits are stable. What's going on? What what do we think is taking place? Well, I think it has a lot to do with what you just put up on screen there, Julia, which is the markets. Uh, The Mm. shares in PacWest, and they're certainly not the only ones, have not recovered uh, since that major tumble off the back of the Silicon Valley Bank uh, troubles in March. I think that has emboldened short sellers to some degree. Certainly their profits uh, have been going up uh, over the month of April. And we have this situation where you don't even have to have a run on the bank. PacWest has not seen uh, a run on deposits. It did lose deposits in the first quarter of the year, but they have come up. It says since then its uninsured deposits are at 75 percent, much, much higher than what we saw uh, with Silicon Valley Bank. So you don't even have to have those sort of issues within the bank uh, for the markets to have an impact. Now that they've seen their share price drop by some 50 percent in a day, we'll see how they open, of course, uh, in the next few minutes. But uh, but but you still have to deal with this issue. So they had to come out with that statement saying uh, that they are, and I quote, um, they said that as previously announced, the company has explored strategic asset sales. They've been approached by several potential partners. Discussions are ongoing. That a potential red flag to Wall Street. But you can't ignore when your stock drops that much. And that is the situation we're in. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. All these smaller banks have now got fierce competition with money market funds, which offer a higher rate of interest than they can to attract deposits, which is a problem going forward. And we know this. But um, never mind what else is going on within the bank. When your share price falls 50 or 60 percent, that's your problem. Perhaps a a balance short selling, as you and I discussed when Silicon Valley Bank went um, went down, perhaps should have been considered. Mm. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. Okay, straight ahead. Lots on investors' minds this week, and we haven't even got to the April jobs report next yet. That's tomorrow. We'll discuss it all with former vice chair of the Federal Reserve, Richard Clarida. That's up next. And later, a murky warning from Maersk. The shipping giant CEO joins us to discuss changing demand and stormy seas ahead. Welcome back to First Move. The U.S. Federal Reserve hiked its benchmark interest rate for a tenth consecutive time, this time by a quarter of a percentage point. But now policymakers are leaving the door open for a pause on hikes. In of these uncertain headwinds, along with monetary policy restraint we've put in place, our future policy actions will depend on how events unfold. 
in determining the extent to which additional policy firming may be appropriate to return inflation to 2% over time. The Committee will take into account the cumulative tightening of monetary policy, the lags with which monetary policy affects economic activity and inflation, and economic and financial developments. We, we will make that determination meeting by meeting <clears throat> based on the totality of incoming data and their implications for the outlook for economic activity and inflation. And certainly uh, investors are no doubt looking at one of the things that he talked about, which was financial market concerns. And shares of PacWest, a regional bank, fell by half in after-hours trade after Bloomberg reported the regional bank is looking to raise capital, break itself up or possibly sell itself. Strategic options, that was what the suggestion was. They're looking at strategic options. Much to discuss. Joining us now is Richard Clarida. He's Managing Director and Global Economic Advisor at PIMCO. He was also Vice Chair of the Federal Reserve from 2018 to 2022. Richard, fantastic to have you on the show. No one better to speak to, I think, at this moment. Mm. Let's start with Jay Powell and, and the Federal Reserve. Do you think he got the balance right in terms of um, signaling that perhaps the possibility of a, a pause was now potent, but also saying, hey, guys, don't expect rate cuts anytime soon? Well, Julia, good to be on your show. Um, yeah, I think it was a tricky balance because uh, you're right. There are really three things the chair wanted to get done yesterday. He, he obviously in the committee wanted to get that rate hike in. Uh, they also wanted to signal that they have the option not to uh, hike at the next <clears throat> meeting and that they think they're close to done. <clears throat> but then they also wanted to provide some insight into their thinking uh, about the uh, financial uh, system. So the chair... Uh, on, on that indicated that uh, he felt that the, the banking system as a whole is sound and liquid and has enough capital. And I think that's about the message we could expect from him. Okay, there's two things there. We'll take the first one. Do you think they're done in this cycle? I think they think they're done. And I think that's the most likely outcome. You know, there, there's a, if in, inflation has proven to be very stubborn uh, and sticky, certainly not transitory, um, and if a year from now it's still somewhere in the mid to high threes, they're probably not done. On the other hand, uh, the economy could slow and inflation could show and, and, and those rate cuts that are priced in could materialize. So I think it's a very uh, a broad range of outcomes. But yeah, my baseline is I do think they're done. And one of the things that they have to focus on and watch, I think, very carefully is the impact of some of the volatility that we've seen in the banking sector and the knock-on impact, the degree of credit tightening that we see. How concerned are you even by what we've seen in the last few days at PacWest now, just the latest bank, that, that's shaking? Well, the reality is when, you, when central banks hike interest uh, rates, uh, banks that have a lot of exposure to interest-sensitive assets are going to face challenges. We see that in all rate hike cycles. Um, I think that, and the chair indicated more so at the last press conference than yesterday, that the Fed does think, I think correctly so, that tighter financial conditions are gonna do some of the work for them in terms of uh, being equivalent to some additional rate hikes. So I think that is a factor in the communication of the pause. So I would not say uh, concerned, but it is certainly a part of the reality of hiking rates to reduce inflation that that's too high. Do you think it is about hiking rates or if some of these banks have said, look, our, our deposit situation now is stable. Actually, it's more about the way that financial markets work and that investors look for those that they think are most vulnerable and, and they sell them. They sell the stocks and that can create a crisis, even if 
the underlying financial conditions in the bank perhaps a challenge, but not to the extent that strategic options are required? I think that's an excellent question, and, and obviously that is a factor uh, in, in this uh, uh, right now. It's a very fluid uh, situation, uh, as, as you mentioned, and we've had you know, uh, two very substantial uh, uh, failures just in the last uh, couple of months. So it is definitely something that I'm sure they're watching that I'm watching. Yeah. I think everybody should be watching. It's certainly a conversation that I was having on the show in light of um, Silicon Valley Bank and whether perhaps some kind of ban on short selling perhaps may have been needed, at least in the short term. But um, I think consensus coalesced around the idea that that initial bout of um, instability that we saw in the banks equated perhaps to around a quarter of a percentage point hike. Where do you think we are today in light of the latest? Does it perhaps take us to around half a percentage point? And I appreciate it's sort of finger in the wind, but I'm just trying to gauge what the extra um, sort of rate hike impact equivalent is today. Now, Jill, it's, it's, it's a good question. The chair himself at the uh, previous press conference indicated it could be worth at least a quarter of a per percentage mm. uh, hike. I, I myself thought at the time probably worth uh, more. Uh, and certainly after the events with First uh, Republic, uh, and especially you have to factor in that especially the, the more medium sized and smaller banks um, lend to a lot of customers who don't have access to the corporate bond market or other markets. And so when, when those banks cut back lending, it is definitely going to have an impact on their customers who don't have other ready sources of, of, of borrowing. So it is going to be a factor. I think, uh, you know, getting equivalency is hard, but, but certainly more than a quarter of a percentage point. You know, I guess one of the, the big questions is how do we ensure that this period that we're now going into isn't sort of reminiscent of the, the 1960s and the 1970s, where it was sort of a game of whack-a-mole with inflation, raising interest rates, cutting interest rates, not really getting mm. inflation under control. Is, is the key here what I think we've already discussed and that J-PAL emphasised, which was, you know, if inflation doesn't come down the way we want it to, there's no way we're cutting rates. Is that the key now to hold steady and not ease too quickly? Because there are those clearly that are looking at the situation and saying, had they raised rates earlier, we wouldn't be in this situation in the first place. And I know it's a, a sort of balance of monetary policy and, and fiscal policy, clearly. But, but is, the, is the error that they could make today easing back too quickly? Well, I, I, I think, I think uh, that, 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 that it's, it's hard to do the counterfactual, but certainly uh, <laughs> what I would say uh, is the, the, the Powell Fed, I think, and Jay Powell himself has said this a number of times, the, the Powell Fed has learned the lessons of the history that you described uh, earlier, stop-go monetary policy, declaring mission accomplished before inflation has returned to your uh, objective. And I don't think they're going to make that uh, mistake. Uh, but certainly the degree of difficulty in executing this hiking cycle has just gone up. There's no doubt about it. Um, I would agree with you that hindsight's perfect sight and you can sit pretty <laughs> when um, you have the benefit of, um, of wisdom of time. But yeah. just to go over the point, um, you know, too slow perhaps to raise rates in this cycle, too slow to cut them in the financial crisis. And, and I think we, we sort of all recognize that. Um, do we need better ways of calibrating, uh, more dynamic ways of, of addressing the data? I guess I'm asking, can we do this better? Well, I think I think policy can always I think policy can always uh, uh, improve. I, I, I guess I would want your audience to recall that 
the, and a lot, big reason that we're here, not just in the U.S., but in the Eurozone, the U.K., most, most uh, central banks around the world are facing a situation in which underlying inflation is uncomfortably high. I don't think they all of a sudden just got amnesia. I think what mm -hmm. happened is we had a once-in-a-century pandemic. We had a once-in-a-century reopening, and we had a lot of policy support, both monetary and fiscal. And I think given the magnitude and nature of those shocks, including the policy response, this is, this is turning out to be a challenging period uh, in order to, to get inflation down to target. So I, I prefer to think about it more in that context. Yes, Julia, prod government officials as well and the amount of spend, spending that they did. Um, how concerned are you by perhaps a debt ceiling breach and the implications of that? Well, I, I, I spent uh, two years of my career as an assistant treasury secretary 20 yes. years ago. So I went through a couple of those uh, inside the treasury uh, building um, um, I, our view is that in the end, a deal does uh, get done. Um, these things always look messy and chaotic up to the uh, up to the you know the eleventh hour and fifty ninth minute. But our bottom line is that a deal will a deal will get uh, will get done. But the politics of this is always contentious when you have a divided uh, Congress as we do today. Yes, yeah, so I guess expect more posturing, but um, a deal in the end is the message. Yeah. Um, Richard, great to chat to you. Thank you so much for your wisdom. Richard Clarida there, Thank former you. vice chair of the US Federal Reserve and global economic advisor at PIMCO. Thank you. Okay, coming up after the break, navigating uncertain waters. The shipping giant Maersk is saddled with falling demand and new conditions and a new CEO. His game plan next. Welcome back to First Move live today from London. The UK is a nation in anticipation for Saturday's coronation. In the US, a Fed rate hike pause is under consideration. At the ECB, Lagarde keeps hiking with no slowdown in inflation. And later today, Apple is out with Q1 earnings information. And on Wall Street, well, early session trepidation. Stocks under pressure amid a super busy news flow. We've had a further quarter point rate hike from the European Central Bank, as I mentioned. Chair Christine Lagarde warning that there's more ground to cover in the fight against rising prices. That's after the Federal Reserve signaled it might soon hold off on more hikes, as we've been discussing. Worry about ongoing banking tremors, too. Shares of PacWest Bank tumbling in early trade after a warning it is considering all options to battle investor flight and first horizon falling too after calling off its merger with td bank citing concerns about regulatory approval hmm. and speaking of market concerns let's not forget the still real threat of a u.s debt default as soon as june the first white house economists now warning that a protracted default could lead to the loss of more than eight million u.s jobs and trigger a 50 percent drop in the stock market. Feels like a worst case scenario. Now, a radically changed business environment. That's the standout phrase from the earnings report of the shipping giant Maersk. Operating profit in the last quarter fell by over two thirds, dragged down by falling demand and falling freight rates. The results from the world's second largest shipping line weren't as bad as many expected, but they came with a warning of weaker numbers perhaps to come. And all this at a time when industry capacity is increasing just as demand is changing course. Vincent Clerk is the CEO and he joins us now. So great to have you on the show. A radically different business environment. Just explain, if you can, whether that's specific to your business after, what, three years of booming profitability versus a broader economic slowdown. And welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having us. No, I think it's, it is really after 
three years of increasing earnings and, and record earnings many quarters in a row. This is the normalization that we knew was going to happen uh, at some point. And it unfolds pretty much as we expected, with this uh, quarter being probably a good transition between the numbers we've been used to looking at uh, over the last couple of years into a more normal trending environment that looks a lot more like what we had uh, in 2018 or 19 before uh, the COVID uh, pandemic and its impacts. Now, uh, this means also that we have to, to handle a whole new set of risks. Uh, you talked about some of the uncertainties that there is on the horizon. They will certainly factor in also how the rest of the year shapes up, which is, uh, which is really also what, what is, is a foundation for our guidance. Yeah, I just wondered to what extent contracts that were signed at higher freight rates in particular are still cushioning the business to a certain extent and, and when some of those roll off, um, particularly given the sort of macro backdrop. And as I, I mentioned in the introduction as well, the, the increasing supply of capacity across the sector too. We've got more ships coming online in the next, what, 12 to 24 months. That's correct. But actually, uh, so far, I would say uh, for, for throughout 2023, we're seeing a significant caution. Uh, in in our earnings from the contracts that we have had, it played very well uh, for our customers in 21 and 22. And, and you see a bit the flip side of this right now where they adjust much slower and provide a caution on, on earning. There is no doubt that over time, the supply and demand developments uh, with a weak macro background and, and a lot of new ships uh, coming online is going to require a lot of capacity discipline, a lot of cost discipline in order to handle this in a way that is uh, protecting the earnings that we have and the integrity of the service that we deliver to customers. I know, and you said it's always going to be a balance between what, what you achieve on the, the shipping side versus the logistics business, which you continue to, to broaden out. Um, I just wanted to ask you about what you're seeing in, in Hong Kong and China now, because I believe in the mainland you're actually bigger there now than you were pre-pandemic. You were at the development forum in, in March and you said look, the dramatic rebound that we were expecting in the region hadn't happened yet. Can I ask you what you're seeing specifically today and whether the catch up now perhaps has kicked in? Yeah, so what we, are, what we are seeing now is a gradual improvement uh, in terms of activities in, uh, in China to support the consumption rebound over there. If the expectation was of a very swift and sharp rebound uh, following the opening, that was certainly not what we were seeing in March. Instead of this, both in March and in April, and also the lead indicators that we have for the rest of the quarter, point to a gradual increase and normalization of consumption over there. So we're seeing that increase. It's not sharp, uh, but it is coming and, and it will continue to gather strength, we expect, in the coming month. So, and even now, because we're going to talk later on on the show about Golden Week and uh, revenge spending that's been seen over the sort of May Day, May Day holiday, you're saying that there isn't and there hasn't been this sharp rebound, but it is slowly progressing. So perhaps don't be um, drawn yeah. by one week spending is the message. That, I think that's what we have seen so far. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a very important uh, sales day on 618 uh, in, in China, which is uh, relatively soon. Uh, that will be a good bellwether for how much of this revenge spending uh, we're going to see here in the year. OK, I want to talk about um, exciting things, too. Um, the world's first containing, container vessel sail sailing on um, green methanol, which is going to be operating, I believe, um, in the Baltic Sea this year. Talk me through this because I've seen some fantastic images. We're showing uh, we're showing our view of them now. Yeah. 
this is a real milestone for us uh, where a lot of the decision and the work that we have made on our energy transition and our, our journey to net zero is actually really taking a very, very concrete phase with this new ship uh, that is about to join our fleet uh, here over the summer. Uh, this uh, over 100 years now of running on diesel or bunker fuel uh, and now a transition that starts towards methanol and, uh, and a net zero. It's the first of, of many, but it's going to be uh, something quite significant and we're going to do something with it to actually demonstrate and show to both our customers, our public and, and also uh, public uh, authorities and so on that where there is a will, there is a way. And uh, we, we have taken quite a few risks to have the ships at the time where we ordered it. The green methanol that we need to power it was not available. And we have worked since then to secure that methanol. And, and I think that this will really be a, a first very important step on our transition and a clear also leading example for what the industry can do when it puts its mind to it. Yeah, to your point, these kind of risks are um, easier to take when uh, profitabilities um, high and the business is booming, that the challenge comes when things are, are slightly slower. Um, what's the cost difference? Because we know the cost of this has to come down to make it m more broadly viable. But what's the cost difference annually of running one of these versus um, traditional container so ships the, the today? Cost of the, the, cost of the, the cost of the vessel in principle is, is pretty much the same, whether it runs on, on green methanol or it, or it runs on bunker. It's a different engine. Uh, but it is pretty much the same. What we have done with this ship, because of the uncertainty of having sufficient methanol to run all of the orders that we have made, is we take them with dual propulsion, so an engine that can do both traditional fuel and green methanol. The intention being that if methanol is available, this is what they will run on. Uh, and that, that has a, a premium on the price of about 8 to 10% uh, in order to take that insurance premium on, on the availability of the fuel. Then there is the price of, of the fuel. And, and this is something that is evolving very, very fast because there is no market for that fuel today. There is no facilities at scale to produce that fuel today. We've been able to secure uh, quite a bit of the capacity that is going to come online this year, next year and the following years. And, and there we're seeing some price differentials uh, that vary a little bit from project to project, but that are still within the willingness to pay that we're seeing from our customers to help us through the transition here. And then I also want to just mention the IRA in, uh, in the US as being a real accelerator for the mm. development of the capacity of fuel. Because getting ordering the ship is, is actually relatively easy from a technology and from a CapEx perspective, but having the fuel available requires the mobilization of a whole industry. And that is what we're starting to see happen now in the US following the implementation of the IRA. Yes, well done, America. Come on, Europe. Um, are you daunted, by the way? Because you know you've just taken over as the CEO. You've got this sort of transition on the energy front and and the operations for what container shipping looks like in the future as it transitions to more green. Plus, as you've said, a sort of new dawn and a more challenging, certainly more challenging back, macro environment. Um, are you daunted? No, I'm actually quite excited. Uh, it's, we have a fantastic opportunity. We have a strategy today that really sets on to address some of the big problems we have seen our customers have here over the last uh, two years. A, a too fragmented supply chain with insufficient visibility, insufficient control, a supply chain that is not sustainable from, a, from, a, from, a, from a, an emission perspective. Our strategy is about solving these problems. That is actually there are risks, as we just discussed, but it's more importantly a fantastic opportunity for us to make a difference 
and to create growth opportunity for the company and, and really uh, also for our customers. So, yes, there is a lot of challenges right now, but all of them can be actually turned into opportunities. And even if some of the quarters will probably be bumpy, I think we have a, a really good road ahead. Yeah, you're ready for action. Good answer. <laughs> so great to chat to you. <laughs> Look forward to speaking next quarter. There you go. There's your smile. Thank you. Great to, uh, great to chat to you, sir. Thank you. The mess CEO you. there. Okay, after the break, from troubled waters in shipping to the sailing in China or spending or, well, we'll see based on that conversation as the country does enjoy a post-pandemic travel blitz. Is it sustainable? That's the question. Next. Welcome back to First Move. China has been celebrating the May Day holiday period and they're calling it a golden week because the signs are that spending has surged past pre-pandemic levels for the first time. Travel has soared too, with 274 million trips taken within China. Just to give you a comparison, that's 71% more than a year ago. Anna Corrin joins us now. And I think we have to remember, for, for many people, this is the first time in, what, three years that they've been able to travel like this without fear of catching COVID. And clearly they're taking advantage of the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely, Julia. There's basically been no May Day holiday or Golden mm. Week, as it's known in China, for the past three years. As you say, you know, China, they've been dealing with COVID. You know, they basically cut themselves off from the world. But this five-day holiday, which ended yesterday, proved that spending and travel is certainly back uh, with a vengeance. Uh, as you say, travellers made 274 million trips within mainland China during the holiday. That's 19% higher than 2019, surging uh, past those pre-pandemic levels. That's according to data from China's Ministry of Culture and Tourism. Now, many tourist attractions, they were inundated. Images of people crammed into buses, bridges and restaurants. They were all over social media. This May Day is crazy. It was a popular hashtag on Weibo. That's China's version of Twitter. And many travellers, in fact, were complaining about the queues. Um, some saying this is the worst uh, holiday experience ever. Now, ever. Uh, revenue uh, from domestic tourism, Julia, it reached 21 billion. That's also higher than 2019. And then on the uh, international front, uh, bookings skyrocketed for, for travel overseas. Uh, compared to Chinese New Year, which was the end of January, uh, bookings from China to Southeast Asian countries uh, increased by 91%. According to Trip.com, a Chinese travel service platform, uh, these, let's show the list, were the 10 most booked outbound global destinations with Japan and South Korea overwhelmingly the most uh, popular the CEO of Trip.com, Jane Sun, uh, said, and let me read you the quote, the May Day holiday has ushered in the first wave of outbound tourism growth this year. Uh, Chinese consumers have been unable to travel for an extended period, but it's clear consumers wish to explore the world again. And Julia, here in Hong Kong, you know, there were many uh, Chinese tourists returning to the city for, in fact, the first time since 2018. We have to take into consideration the, the Hong Kong uh, protests of 2019, which, which really drove many mainlanders away. But, you know, it's safe to say they're certainly back. Yeah, I was about to say, um, it was just so wonderful to see all those complaints, actually, about tourist attractions being too busy. It's like what you wouldn't have given for that over the last few years. Um, exactly. Good news. Anna, great to have you with us. Thank you.
Thank you. Now to the U.S. now, and summer travel kicks off in just a few weeks' time, but airlines are facing a major problem, an air traffic controller shortage. Aviation experts even warning now it's a problem that could affect summer plans. CNN's aviation correspondent Pete Muntean has more. Warnings of not enough workers for your next trip stretch from cockpits to control towers with the FAA's own air traffic controllers now in short supply. The agency says nationwide, two in every 10 controller jobs are empty. The problem is so severe at a key facility in New York that the FAA is warning summer delays at the area's three main airports could rise by 45%. It's a chilling message that we're not able to fly uh, you know, the routes at, at that level because we don't have enough air traffic controllers. Now, the federal government is scrambling to play catch-up, opening a rare hiring window Friday. Last year, it was flooded with 58,000 applications. That's 38 candidates for every one opening. It's an important job. Absolutely, it's an important job. Uh, well, it's the backbone for aviation. Carmen Smith is one of the air traffic control students here at Emory-Riddle Aeronautical University in Florida, ready to hit submit the moment the application window opens. FAA hiring slowed down during the pandemic. Professor and former FAA official Michael McCormick says compounding the problem, the agency shuttered its training academy. Over time, this builds, and that's why we have such a gap now in the training of controllers and the need to hire so many more. To see if I have what it takes, I stepped into this control tower simulator to give it a try. 3455 Yankee, clear for departure 16. Students practice lining up flights for takeoff and landing, issuing fast, specific instructions with no margin for error. It's so much to keep track of. Yeah. This is a tough gig. <laughs> it's probably every single time I ever hear someone say that is such a stressful job, and I'm sitting here and I'm like, I can do it. Spare wings 195. Clearly, the students here are more accustomed to the intensity of this job than I am. It can take three years for the FAA to fully train recruits. Acting Administrator Billy Nolan insists hiring is on schedule, but it might not be fast enough to keep flights on schedule this summer. We're hiring over the next two years 3,300 additional controllers. That'll give us a net plus up of about 500 accounting for retirements and attrition. Okay, coming up here on First Move, a time of transition. The coronation of King Charles just two days away now. A look at the monarchy's role in modern Great Britain next. Welcome back to First Move. Just two days now until the coronation of King Charles III here in London. But some polls show public support for the monarchy is lower among the younger generation. And that's going to be a challenge going forward. Bianca Nabilo takes a look at its place in modern day Britain. And happy indeed by the revellers who welcomed Britain's coronation year in Piccadilly. The longest interlude between two coronations in British history. Decades of demographic, religious and societal change raising questions about the relevance of the monarchy today. 1953 was full of post-war joie de vivre and excitement about a new young queen. They've come to seek work in Britain. Despite waves of historic migration, Britain in the 1950s was overwhelmingly white, Christian and divided along class lines in society and the halls of power. 
Today, three of the four great offices of state, including the Prime Minister, are from minority backgrounds. 20% of the population today are from ethnic minority backgrounds too, and rising. Many from countries subject to exploitation in the former British Empire. The monarchy itself has to find a respectful and humble place for itself without pretending that it doesn't have all of its privilege, all of its history and all of its baggage. Though crumbling slowly after the Second World War, Britain was still stratified along class lines in the 1950s. The ermine tails denote rank. A duchess, for example, wears four robes. Modern Britain is in many ways allergic to the idea of inherited privilege. Society at least strives to be egalitarian. But a recent poll commissioned by the BBC, Britain's national broadcaster, suggests that King Charles might have a problem appealing to young people, 38% of whom said that they would support an elected head of state. And indifference might be a problem too. 78% said they weren't interested in the royal family. I think it's definitely time to rethink and I know a lot of people loved Queen Elizabeth and I don't think that same fondness is there for King Charles. The monarch since the 16th century is also titular head of the Church of England. In 1953 the majority of the country was Christian. Today it is half that with the number of non-religious and non-Christian faiths rising each year with multi-faith leaders playing a role in the coronation for the first time. King Charles, who has declared himself to be defender of all faiths, was honoured here at Britain's largest mosque ahead of the coronation. So could this be an opportunity for all the communities in Britain to come together? Within Islam, we're taught that part of your faith is loyalty to your nation. And we also know that the coronation is part of history of this nation. And as citizens, we respect that history. The coronation is a litmus test for how King Charles will be received by 2023 Britain and whether enthusiasm, apathy or opposition to the monarchy will shape his reign. Bianca Nobolo, CNN, London. OK, and that just about wraps up the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next and I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.